I thought today was going to be great because I had my multivitamin, and then that happened. Wow, that was amazing. Multivitamins are things you take when you're nearing the age of 30, by the way. So don't worry about it now. You have that weird college metabolism, but just wait. It will come for you, and it will be in an iron deficiency. So if you have no idea who I am, or maybe you weren't here last week, my name is Michael. I'm the director of Salt Company. Uh, just means I talk a lot and get to work with amazing people. But you also now need to realize you have a standing appointment at 8 o'clock every Thursday night in this room, right? Who's excited to be back? Anybody? <laughs> Me too. And now you know where you need to be every Thursday night at 8 o'clock, if at all possible. This is the place. I'm expecting you, and I see all of you right now, okay? You know I'm not going to remember, so you didn't even flinch. I get that. That's okay. So... If you uh, need to know anything about uh, Salt Company, it's that we're not just Salt Company. We said this last week. We are actually part of a church. That's what this is. Like I said, we don't meet on the central campus every week because winter's coming, but we meet here at Candeo Church. And it's not like we just rent out the building from Candeo. No, we are absolutely a part of that church. And so every Sunday, 8.45 and 10.45, so we know you like to sleep in, it's Sundays, you come out to this place, this is now your family. So now you have two appointments, Thursday night at 8, and then we'll say 10.45 on Sunday. So I'll give you a chance to sleep in. We want you to be a part of this place. We want you to feel at home in this church. We want you to know that you're family. And so I'm so glad you're here. And you know, family helps each other. And I, uh, I recently bought a house, so I'm also expecting all of you at 8.30 on Saturday morning to arrive at my home, 2216 West 8th Street. I really want to tell you that you'll have like some extra special blessing in heaven, but I don't think so because I'm kind of manipulating you into that. So I just want to let you know if you love people, uh, if you love me, and you just want to help me out, 8.30 Saturday morning. Uh, I have two incredibly cute children. So even if you're just like, I'm not going to help him, but his kids are cute. I talk about them a lot too. So if you actually want to know like, why does this dude talk about them all the time and what do they look like? Come help me move. Okay. Just saying at a primarily women's college. I gotta get all the help I can get. Okay, guys, that's for you. So tonight, we're starting a series, and we're gonna go just for three weeks. It's gonna be called Foundations, like it says on the screen. See, it's something I actually want us to continue doing every year that we start, reminding old friends and then letting new friends know what it is that's foundational to being a Christian, or at least what's foundational to Salt Company. So that if someone to ask you, like, what are you guys about? You, after these three weeks, will be able to say, we're about Bible, we're about community, and we're about mission. We're about the Bible because it's God's word, and we'll get into that tonight. We're about community because Jesus tells us the Christian life has to be lived together. And we're about mission because Jesus has sent us and daily sends us into the world to represent him and all that he has done for us so that others can know him as well. Bible, community, and mission. So for the next three weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about. And so tonight we start with Bible, this thing. You probably have it on an app, or maybe you have one of these, or maybe you have lots of these in different versions, in translations, some really strange and hard to read, others almost too simple and confusing. Um, but it's an important book, and what we do with this book 
we don't do, uh, what we do with this book, we don't do it with any other book on Thursday and Sunday, okay? Like the sermon, the message, when the pastor opens this thing and talks about it, like you're never gonna hear me walk up here and say, okay, now open your copy of the Chamber of Secrets to chapter four, <laughs> page 210. We're gonna talk about how Harry defeats the Dark Lord and how you defeat your Dark Lords, right? <laughs> We're not gonna stand up here and let you know like what you need to do is hunt down the horcruxes in your life so your soul can be free. We're not gonna do that. We're not gonna do that here because there is no other book like the Bible and the Bible is like no other book. It is so categorically different than anything else you will ever read if you still do that or scroll on your screen. You know, we're not just supposed to come up here and give you a TED Talk. It's not Christian uh, chicken soup for the Christian soul. There's something different about this book. Why? What is so different about the Bible? I'm going to kind of be circular in how I answer that. I'm going to use the Bible to tell you why it's so different. 2 Timothy 3.16, a book in the Bible, says that all Scripture, all of this, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. Okay, the big key, outside of the fact that it's useful for so many things, is the beginning of that. It says all scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. So it's not just like me writing you an email and sending it into your inbox. If you got an email from me, you might actually just ignore it because it's not that important. But when it's God himself, who is speaking and chose to speak by putting his words on a page, it absolutely changes the nature of what it is we're reading. And here's just a few details about it. It's actually not just one book. I know we call it the Bible. It's actually 66 books, right? 66 books that make up one cohesive library. And it's filled with all kinds of genres. Some we don't even have, like apocalyptic literature. We don't write that anymore because The Hunger Games isn't true, right? It's just this, this kind of wild book with all these different things, and it's kind of funny. It actually never calls itself the Bible. Did you know that? Bible just means the book. But I think the even crazy, crazier thing is that as Christians, those of you in this room who would say, I am a Christian, that means you base your life off a book that I think for the most part you know nothing about, right? You base your entire reason for following Jesus or being in this place off a book you almost know nothing about. Like, I just, I'm one of you, so hear me say this lovingly. It is weird to base your life off an ancient book of literature, right? Like if anyone walked in and said, you know what, I really love to base my life off of the Iliad or the Odyssey, you'd be like, you'd laugh like you are now. Like that's crazy. <laughs> so what makes it so different that we would say, actually, I base my life off of this book? Well, you know, one thing's for sure. It's because God didn't write the Iliad or the Odyssey or that might change things, but God wrote this book and it's different. And so what I believe is that as Christians, we should begin to know a whole lot about this book. We should begin to devour it, to study it, and to know it in such a way that we, we, we crave it almost. And I'll, I'll talk more about that in a second. See, here's the kind of like scary thing is if you look at the statistics, our generation because I'm with you, is the most biblically illiterate generation since the invention of the printing press, right? That means we are the generation who has the most access to the Bible and yet has no idea what it says or even how to read it. And yet we have more access, right, to it than any other people group on earth. 
If you're like me, you have multiple copies of this book, and most of them collect dust. And I want to change that. And I don't want to change that. I'm going to let God change that. I don't like this quote, but I think it's true. Someone said, the Bible is the best-selling book that's never read. But I think we need to kind of pull back. I'm not trying to slap us around and make us feel bad. I think the reason that's actually true is because we don't know how to read it, right? There's confusing stuff in this book. There's really weird titles like Leviticus, and then you see people like killing goats and rams and walls falling down after walking around them seven times. That's never happened to me. There's strange things in this book that if we don't know how to read about those strange things or things we don't understand, of course we wouldn't want to read it. That's like trying to decipher ancient ruins. It's never going to be a hobby of mine. And so tonight I hope even to decode the Bible for you. Help all of us begin to understand how it is we actually understand it. And one way that I actually want to change that is by putting you on the, the Christian faithful Bible reading plan, right? Anybody ever tried one of those and then quit? Like your New Year's resolution the next day. I was done, you guys, right? I was like, the 31st, I'm going to read the Bible more. The next day, I was like, maybe not. I'll just do it on my own time. But there's this awesome app. I'm going to make it a little plug. It's called the Read Scripture app, okay? I have it. I seriously, I want you to download it. We're going to talk about it throughout the year. We're going to see if you guys are reading through it. It's amazing because it takes the books of the Bible before you get into them, and it actually plays little videos. And they're really well done. My three-year-old loves them. I love them. They're made for everybody, right? They're super easy to understand. And they make the Bible easy to understand because the Bible should not be a book that's really hard to understand. The problem's not with the Bible. The problem's with us. And so if you want to download that thing, I highly recommend you doing so. I'm going to try it, and don't feel guilty if one day you skip it, right? And don't feel guilty if you end up reading it while you're using the bathroom. That's like a solid 15 minutes for a parent to be alone. You guys have no idea. That's like the safest place in my house. And even sometimes it's not, because I'll be sitting there, and then I just hear, whoa, 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 they're coming for me. And all I wanted to do was dispose of something. And it's just not helpful. Yeah, pro tip, enjoy your peace and quiet now. Enjoy your peace and quiet now, right? Take naps, sleep in, anyways. Be disciplined, read your Bibles. Um, here's practical advice, though, for when it comes to the Bible, right? You need to acquire a taste for it. I promise you, most likely tomorrow, you're not gonna wake up, read your Bible once, and be like, I can't put this thing down, and then begin to just mow through it, right? Because I've never met anyone who ate kale once and was like, this is the best. Never again, Taco Bell, get out of my life, right? <laughs> no. When you begin like a diet and you begin to try to eat healthier, it takes time to develop a taste for that better thing and lose your appetite for lesser things. And so as you begin to read the Bible, do not get discouraged if some days you're like, this doesn't taste very good or I don't want to do this. You might have to force yourself to do it, and you won't always get warm fuzzies when you read it, and that's okay. But be okay if it takes time to acquire a taste for the Bible. Now, enough of me talking. I want the Bible to make a case for itself. The Bible loves to talk about itself, actually. It calls itself things like the Word of God, the breath of God, as we saw, and even the Scriptures. You see, what I love is God wants to be known and he wants us to understand who he is and why he's given us the things he has. And so the Bible's constantly revealing why it exists whenever you find it in, its, in the Bible. It always tells you the what and the why of why it exists. 
and no one's opinion of the Bible is more important than Jesus. And so that's where we're going to go tonight. We're going to go to a story in Luke 24. If you want to churn, churn there, turn there, or click there, or scroll there, whatever you need to do. Luke 24 and go to chapter 13. And I want to stop and say, see, now foundational, even before Bible community and mission, is Jesus. There would be no church that we're sitting in without Jesus. He is at the core of the Christian faith. He is the foundation or the cornerstone, as the Bible puts it. And so what he does with the Bible, what he says about the Bible, and what he reveals about the Bible is where we need to go and what we need to understand. And so tonight we're going to see how Jesus is going to reveal the how, how to read it, and the why, why it exists, the Bible. So Luke 24 Verse 13, so here's what's going on because we're about to dive in to a story. It's like we've turned the channel and the story's been playing for a while to get you caught up. It's the third day now since Jesus has been crucified. He was hung on a cross. He's been, been dead for three days, but some of the women who followed him showed up at the tomb and are claiming that angels showed up and said, he's not here. Go somewhere else, he's gone. He's not dead anymore. And now we're walking up on two sad disciples, not apostles, so not the 12 guys that followed Jesus everywhere, but just two disciples. Jesus had a lot of those. They're leaving Jerusalem. They just think, okay, this thing's done. We should probably go. I don't think people who follow Jesus are very well liked in the city anymore. So they're on this road. So verse 13 says this. Now that same day, two of them, there's those two guys, were on their way to a village called Emmaus, just outside of Jerusalem, seven miles, it says. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Okay, I love that. So Jesus wasn't wearing a cheap disguise, right? He didn't have like face paint or a mask on. He's Jesus. He does what he wants. And he's absolutely trying to stay hidden. Verse 17, he asks them, and I think he's so messing with them. He goes, what's this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. Like, you know when you've had bad news and someone keeps asking you to tell the story of the bad news over and over again? I think they're just, they stop, they look at him. And one of these guys, his name's Cleopas, he answers him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? And Jesus, I think he's being snarky, kind of, he knows what he's about to do, bring them hope, not shame, but hope. He says, what things? Like he plays dumb. Oh yeah, what's going on, guys? What's wrong? I, I just love it. So they say to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. I kind of wish it said he, I wish it would have said, he goes, who's that? But he didn't, that's extra biblical. <laughs> But they say he was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. And they tell him how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Now, interesting there, it's like they don't believe them. They, they didn't say they saw. He, they say they reported that they had seen a vision of angels. Like, we're not really sure if we believe them. And then verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. 
And this is where Jesus, looking to them, I don't think uh, in frustration, but in compassion, he says in verse 25, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And now you have to pause. Like, did Jesus just say, you're slow and stupid? Let me explain it to you. It would seem rude or unassuming if we didn't understand why he's responding this way. See, Jewish men back in the day, up until about age 12, they would have had to learn and memorize about this much of the Bible, right? I can't even memorize my wife's social security number. And they memorized that much by like age 12. They had to know that much of their Bibles. They should have known what he was talking about. Because when he says Moses and the prophets, he's talking about this part of your Bible. The smaller part, the New Testament didn't exist. So to them, it was Genesis all the way to a prophet named Malachi. So Jesus says, didn't you know that all of this is talking about this suffering servant? See, these Jewish men also thought that a Messiah was coming, but not to die, but to conquer. They were expecting a king with a sword and with power to dropkick the Roman Empire and start a new reign for the people of Israel. They were confused, and what Jesus is saying is you're confused because you weren't reading this right. You're confused because you weren't seeing what you were actually supposed to see in these pages. And so he begins to lead them on, I think, like probably the greatest Bible study ever on earth. He walks with them. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That would be like the best podcast in the world, right? They came near the village in verse 28 where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But like I would do, they urged him, no, 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 you need to stay with us. It's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. Like the loaf of bread just, boom, knocks on the ground. He's gone. And this, this is so good. Verse 32, they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? I love this story. There may not be any better story that so reveals how we should read our Bibles and why the Bible even exists. And I want to unpack that tonight. And it's foundational in how Jesus uses it. And it's foundational for your life. So like I said, the two big things I want you to see right now is Jesus communicates and shows incredible value and trust to the scriptures, we'll call it. Jesus trusts and values them so much, and he will soon and does here reveal the Bible's ultimate purpose. See, the Bible wasn't just important to Jesus now. It was foundational to his life. So he would have been one of those good little Jewish boys who would have memorized it all the way through, taught it, studied it, and used it all the time. Like at 12 years old, he snuck away from his mom and dad not to like go beat up on some kids, or I don't know what small Jewish boys did back in the day to get in trouble, right? Like, he didn't go sneak off with some girl or go to, like, break windows. He snuck off to go argue with some rabbis about what the Bible really meant, right? That's how you know he did live a perfect life. That's what he chose to do when he snuck away. At 12 years old, he snuck away to go and begin to talk about the Bible, to talk about grown men who had studied it their whole lives, and it says in that 
uh, story in Luke, just about 20 chapters earlier, that these older men were amazed at what this 12-year-old knew about the Scriptures. And then as he walks through his ministry, it's what he teaches from all the time. Sometimes redefining maybe what you thought the Bible said or revealing that, yeah, what the Bible says is of utmost importance, whether on mountaintops, in houses, he was constantly reiterating its purpose and its power in the life of anyone who said they wanted to follow God. And it's even a big deal that in this story, he did not first reveal himself, but he hid himself so he could show them that the Bible was already telling his story. Like I said, it's the greatest Bible study we've never heard. He took that giant part of our Bibles and revealed how every page made him clear. Like he could have just been like, boo, it's me. Let me tell you about how this book also shows you that it's me. Like David Blaine, nothing on Jesus, right? He totally hides himself on purpose because instead of saying, look, it's me, I'm just going to now tell you, he says, let me show you. For him to stop, not reveal himself and instead use the scriptures to do it tells us that they are incredibly important that they are incredibly valuable. He wanted these disciples to see the truth for themselves, and so he guided them to it as he walked them through it, right? It was so important to him because Jesus would leave soon after this, and what the followers of Jesus would be left with would be his Holy Spirit and this book. I think Jesus knew, hey, I'm not gonna be around for a while, but you know what, this thing's gonna endure. And so if you understand how this is all about me, then that's all you're going to need. The Bible is super valuable to Jesus and it's super important then to us. And I think a lot of people go like, I love Jesus, but I just can't love the Bible. Like I, I love Jesus, I'm into what he says, I can get down with that, but I can't really get down with the Bible. Like, aren't there really confusing errors in it? And doesn't it contradict itself? And yeah, so I'm gonna take Jesus, but not the Bible. And I would tell you tonight, to love Jesus means you have to love the Bible because he based his entire life off of it. And you're gonna find that him and the Bible are more attached than you think in just a few minutes. Jesus' whole life was based on the scriptures. It was what he used every time he taught. He knew them from front to back. And it's not even the only time we see him using the scriptures. All the time I could point to you different things, but one of the biggest ones and how we see how valuable it was to Jesus Christ was in Matthew chapter four, Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights in a desert, not eating or drinking. In this, and in the Israeli wilderness, Satan comes along to tempt him. And Jesus is, he's, he's trying to tempt Jesus to sin and to submit to Satan, to just kind of say, forget the plan that God has put you on and just, I'll give you what you really want. And Jesus' counterattack, it's not holy water. He doesn't start splashing Satan, right? He doesn't pull out a rosary and start saying any prayers. And he's not in some like weird, he doesn't start a fist fight. You ever seen that weird photo of Jesus and Satan arm wrestling? Like that's not what happened in the wilderness, the weapon that Jesus used, the thing that he trusted in his greatest moment of need was the Bible. When Jesus was at one of his greatest moments of need, he turned to the scriptures and he used it. As Satan tried to tempt him and attack him, Jesus' answers were always, but the word of God says, but the word of God says, but the word of God says. And so if Jesus in his greatest need is using the scriptures, it's telling us something. And now you, you're, there's got to be some of you in the room who you're like, I don't even believe in Jesus, so everything you're saying doesn't matter to me. And that's fine. 
Um, when you think about ancient literature, one of the greatest ways we decide like how legit is it, it's the number of like manuscripts that it has. So what that means is like how old of a copy do we have of a book? That kind of lets us know how legitimate it is. And no book has older copies or like completed manuscripts than the Bible, right? There's no other book that has that many proven manuscripts of its ancient like legitimacy than the Bible or prophecies. You read prophecy after prophecy in this book that aren't fulfilled for 400 years, like being born of a virgin or out of the city of Bethlehem. Jesus fulfills every single one of them. And at one point even walks into a temple, whips open one of those scrolls, reads it, and mic drops it. And everyone's kind of confused. He was so clearly the answer to those prophecies. There are actually historical, real places that prove his existence. Like, I've been there. Me and Laura Benson went on this giant trip. She's our associate director to Israel. We walked places that they say Jesus would have walked. We were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did some wild things when you begin to read. There are real places Another one that I really love, you know that it would make no sense to use a woman as your primary witness in the ancient world? That unfortunately for women, you were not considered a legitimate witness or even a citizen back then. So the fact that Jesus, if you read the accounts, you know who's always at the tomb first? It's a woman. You wouldn't do that unless you were absolutely sure what you were saying was true. And that's what he's doing here. Or here's a really weird one. The disciples are idiots, you guys. <laughs> right? They're morons. At one point, Peter, who becomes like the lead pastor of the first church, looked at Jesus, said, hey, don't do that. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, right? <laughs> in the ancient world, when you were trying to start a movement or prove that something you believed in was super legit, you wouldn't use stories about how stupid all of the people who followed it were. You would try to fudge the story and change it to make Peter and all of his followers look really heroic and really awesome. And then even from last week, if you remember that blind guy or the crippled guy, he wasn't a really good person to heal, but Jesus isn't afraid of using people who aren't that great about being his witnesses because God knew that it was true, right? And so many people though will listen to that and I understand you'll go, doesn't matter, I just don't trust the Bible. And my question is, have you ever actually given it a chance? Like not walking up to it already believing it's full of bull, but actually like opening and saying, okay God, if there's really are your words, show me. And so if you're here tonight and you have been skeptical about the Bible, my just simple ask would be open it. And don't go to Leviticus, you'll get so confused, right? Like, start in the book of Luke, this one. Go to the beginning of this one. So much easier to read. But I would want you, and it maybe even challenge you, to begin to read it. But before you do that, and before we're done tonight, you have to realize you can't read it like you would any other book. You cannot read the Bible like you would read any other book because it's not like any other book. And how we read the Bible has everything to do with why it was ever even written in the first place. And here is where we begin to unpack the why. See, the Bible is not an encyclopedia of truth, although it has true things in it. It's not a textbook on how to cuddle lambs and play games with children like you see white Jesus doing all the time, right? It's not a rule book that just straight up tells you what you can and cannot do, although there are things that God puts in there that tells you what you can and cannot do, but actually it's what you should and should not do, not because he wants to keep things from you, but because he wants you to flourish and live no, what the Bible is, is it's a story. The Bible is a story revealing to us who God is. 
And it's one unified story. All 66 books are one unified story that all lead up to, point towards, and culminate in Jesus. That is what the Bible is. This is the story of God. It's his words put on paper, and Jesus is at the center and heart of all of it. And you guys, this is beautiful. God did not send us an email, right? He sent us a story. He sent us a story, and it's a story that whether you believe the Bible or not is actually etched into every one of our hearts. It's in the fabric of who you are, and it echoes in the back of almost everything you see in the stories you love. Like, I know I joked about Harry Potter earlier, but there's something about that idea of good conquering evil that just draws us in. This idea that the bad will get pushed back or the wrong will be made right. We love when Luke Skywalker destroys his dad, which is kind of wild, but pushes back the dark side of the force and brings balance, right? Or if you've seen the Disney movie Moana, when she goes on her quest because the island is being poisoned and you so badly want her to fix everything. And you're like, when she finally does it, there's this relief and it's amazing. And think of any story you love. I'm telling you right now, I could probably guess there are there's one theme, or maybe two, if you split it into two words, that is in every great story that captivates our heart, redemption and restoration. In almost every single story that actually pulls us in and begins to change us, or at least does something to our hearts, maybe causes some tears, is because it involves redemption or restoration. We love and we crave for the darkness to be pushed back and all the wrong to be made right again. It's why you were so messed up when you left Infinity War, because things were not okay right? And you're still not okay. And we're here together. Okay. I understand that. But that's actually something like, guys, they didn't roll any music at the end of that movie. They just left it there and you were bothered by it because I know I was bothered by it because in your heart, you crave redemption and restoration. You want to see the good guy win and you crave for the bad things to lose And here's the problem, because when the book is over and you close the cover or when the credits roll, you get back in your car and you still feel that ache. Because although the problem got resolved on the screen or in the last sentence of the book, it's not resolved in your heart. Because you and I live in a world of brokenness, because we are a people with broken hearts. But here's what happens. When you begin to open the pages of this book, just even the first ones, you'll actually find yourself in a beautiful and good world created by a good and loving God. But just a few chapters in, three actually, mankind, like a sledgehammer in their hands, rebels and slams sin into God's good world and breaks everything. So that by chapter three, that good world that had just started a few chapters ago has been absolutely shattered to pieces by something very bad. And you begin to feel the tension and you begin to long for things to be made right and God does something incredible. He promises he'll fix it. Already in chapter three, if you were to read, he makes this promise. He says, look, someone is coming. And this snake that kind of ruined everything, he'll bruise my promise keeper's heel, but he's going to crush that snake's head. And then God makes the first sacrifice ever, and he clothes Adam and Eve 
And in that physical covering, he's saying there's one coming better who's going to cover your spiritual brokenness. Because, guys, it's not outside brokenness. That's a consequence of inside brokenness. The problem with all of us and why movies resolving don't heal anything and why good books ending with the good guys happy doesn't fix anything is because it's not an outside problem we need to fix. It's an inside one. And if we were on the road to Emmaus and had just finished that story, or at least that first part of this Bible study, I think Jesus would look at us and he'd say, that's me. And I'm just getting started. Because the redemption of God, the redemption he promised, it wasn't just this idea out there, it was in a person right here. The redemption God promised, it wasn't an idea out there, it was in a person right here, and his name is Jesus. The Bible is God's story, but it's his story of redemption of his decision to clean up a mess that he did not make, to come after a people who did not want him. And he did it through the God-man named Jesus. It says later in John chapter one, Jesus is literally the word made flesh. You wanna understand the Bible? Watch Jesus live. Listen to him speak and search for him in every page of this book. You will begin to understand the Bible when you realize that it is a story of redemption and you watch for it, and then you begin to look for Jesus. So if you've been confused by your Bible, I would, can, I would ask you to open it and begin to say, where is the story of redemption, and when can I start to find Jesus? Let me do it for you in just a few sentences. Jesus, right at the beginning, he's the snake crusher, promised moments after our failure. When God says, I know everything's gone wrong, but I promise I'll make it right again someday. Then you flip the book of Genesis and there's a second one. God has picked a group of people called the Israelites, not because they earned it or deserved it, but because he's just good and showing grace and they're enslaved by this wicked man named Pharaoh. And eventually, trial after trial, plague after plague, he finally lets the people go. But right when they're about to be delivered, they stand in front of a body of water called the Red Sea with Pharaoh pursuing them to take them back into slavery. There is no way out, and yet God makes a way and rips the sea wide open. That's whispering to you that there was no way out of your sin and death, but because of Jesus, there is. Then you even open the book of Leviticus, as confusing as it is. It's filled with all these laws and ways that you had to sacrifice animals just to remove some sin. And what you actually may end up doing is reading and going, this is exhausting. And I think it's like, yes, it is, because if one sacrifice would come just to remove it all, we wouldn't have to do this anymore. And then you begin to see Jesus. Or maybe you read 1 Samuel, another VeggieTales remix, where David stands before this giant Goliath. And although he takes him down, you're not supposed to see yourself as David. You are never the hero. You're the scared Israelite. Goliath is sin and death. And that champion who's so trusted in God, it's whispering, Jesus. But then David fails. He actually isn't the king that we thought was coming, the Messiah we thought would rule. He fails and falls into sin, but God promises, I'm still coming. Don't lose hope. And then you read about this suffering servant in the prophet Isaiah, a wounded Messiah, where he says, he bore our sicknesses, carried our pains. We turned from him, regarded him afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for peace, And we are now healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And then it gets even crazier because for 400 years it was silent. And without a trumpet sound, but with the cry of a baby, a little boy was born in a feeding trough. 
the Son of God crossed the horizon of heaven to come to earth. And he began to bring humanity back to life, ultimately by giving up his own. And when the disciples were sitting there hearing this, it lit their hearts on fire. Because Jesus had showed them, no, you see, God wrote you a story, and in that story, you're supposed to be looking for how he's fighting and clawing and doing whatever he can, despite even your failures to redeem you. And he didn't just promise some abstract redemption out there. He promised it in a person, his own son. And the narrative inside of those disciples is the same one inside of us. And they had been face to face now with the redemption they'd always been searching for, and that changes you. And it makes you come alive. And the words that God has spoken in this book will begin to push and press against your heart, and you'll begin to change, and you'll begin to see that now you really live. Because although there's no more Bible written, the story is not over. You're still sitting in the story God is writing. One where he has an answer for the broken world. And it's in Jesus, but he's decided, really strangely, to put it inside of broken jars of clay like you and me. And when you read this Bible like you're supposed to, or a redemption story, and you search for Jesus, you will begin to see it in ways you had never seen it before. It teaches us how to live the redeemed life and to be who he's called us to be. And guys, I might wake up tomorrow, stare at this thing, and honestly, my first temptation is to go, well, I should probably read my Bible. But if I sit and remember, wait, God, you wrote me a story, not because I deserved one or earned one, but because you wanted to be known, because you saw the problem with the world and you said, I'm gonna fix it. And you did it with a person then I don't think I'll be too uh, bored to open this, right? Because my heart will come on fire. And when I see him in there, it does it every time. And it's not always emotional, but at least a little bit it is, right? This is not a book of rules for rules sake, but it's a book revealing the redemptive nature of God and his better plan for how we should live. And his plan was accomplished through a sacrifice that we didn't deserve. God wants you to know him, and he's written you a story. And so we take this book, and we open the story every single week, looking for Jesus. And we take this book, and we speak it to each other. Don't do it alone either. Do it in community. Guys, what would happen if we stopped letting the Bible seem so boring and let it do what it was always meant to do and become beautiful? things would change. What an incredible God to give us a story. And so that's the first foundation. How do we read the Bible? Like a redemptive story. And who are we looking for? His name is Jesus. And we're going to worship him now. So let's pray. God, you created us, not because you had to, but because you wanted to. And if we just stop there, we've already learned that in Genesis 1. 
It wasn't like it was time to create mankind. No, out of the goodness of who you are, you decided to give us life. And with that sledgehammer of rebellion, we shattered everything. We deserved to sit in the broken pieces. And yet you came and you said, I'm going to pick them all back up and I'm going to make you whole. And so, God, would you change us at Salt Company? Would you help us to open this book and not to have warm fuzzies with our lattes every time we post it on Instagram, but to have hearts that change because the Spirit of God is showing us our Savior is in here and he's calling to us. Would you make us alive through this book and would our hearts catch fire every time we see you and every time we sing to you and every time we sit here? Would it not be to just sing some awesome songs, but would it be to hear the words of God? And would it not just be on Thursday nights that anyone in this room hears your word, but would it be early in the morning or in a quiet place in the afternoon? God, would you make this room a room of people who love to read your story?